Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania, and I think we're looking at Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? Doing very well, and we're going to now uh, introduce Chase Byers because he's the one who's kind of leading us through a study of Matthew uh, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in chapter five. Good afternoon, Chase. Afternoon, guys. Good to see you guys. Glad we're back this week. You want to get us started in Matthew chapter five? Yes, I do. So, guys, we left off going through the Beatitudes last week, Matthew 5, 1 through uh, 12. Just real quickly on the front end of the podcast today, uh, or webcast rather, I'd love to just do a quick screen share and look at an outline for the Sermon on the Mount. So it was really cool to me when I finally started studying some of the flow of things. I mean, Jesus, much like when we put together sermons and preach, you know, there's logic, there's a flow of thought. And so last Chase, week we emphasized... That, Chase, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you want to put that in your presentation mode? I can, yeah. How's that? Yeah. Okay. So basically, uh, I think the Sermon on the Mount breaks down into four basic categories. Uh, what we talked about last week was citizen characteristics. All of those beatitudes are ways in which we can be more and more uh, like the citizens that this kingdom is for. But also, we're going to pick up in verse 13 here in just a little bit that are going to talk about being salt and light because citizens testify of the king of the kingdom that they are in. And so we'll talk a little bit about that today. Also, Lord willing, we're going to get it get into the second section on the new kingdom and the old law. Jesus is going to come in and he's going to say that uh, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, um, but I came to fulfill them. But then he's going to go through and say a bunch of things, mostly some from the old law and then say, but I say unto you. And so we'll talk a little bit about how that balances today. In chapter six, moving into chapter seven, uh, I just titled that section kingdom life in the midst of this world. So Here's what it looks like to be a citizen. Here's what it looks like to follow the law. But here's what life looks like within the kingdom, uh, how you live publicly, how you live personally, and how you treat other people. And then lastly, what does it take to stay and get into this kingdom that looks so wonderful? And uh, so Jesus will spend the, the latter part of the Sermon on the Mount talking about those things. So that's just a quick breakdown of what I think the Sermon on the Mount is broken down into. At least for me, that's a helpful way to kind of remember the waves in the Sermon on the Mount. Any thoughts or comments on that, guys? Nope. All right. Will, one of you want to read verses 13 through 16 for us? <clears throat> you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under the bushel, but on the stand, and it shines unto all that are in the house. Even so, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Two basic things that Jesus is calling on his citizens in this kingdom to be, be salt and be light. Why these two things, guys? Well, uh, light, of course, illuminates that you, you want to be, people are in darkness in this world of sin we think people think they know the answers or at least they think human beings can figure out the answers to their problems and then they find out it doesn't work and so we're kind of floundering around in the dark and the word of god is is a light unto our feet it shows us our path um salt uh now people talk a lot about salt i'm gonna let you guys go there with salt 
Um, people talk about whether it's salvific, to throw out a word there, or whether it's um, indicating uh, seasoning. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm prepared to debate that. So I'll let you guys go there. You take one chase and I'll take the other. Okay, so, so I was just going to talk about simply what, what the purpose of salt is. So I think for me, my mind immediately goes to salt is supposed to make things taste better. That, that's the bottom line point of putting salt on your food. And that'll be a point that'll be made later. But like, you know, if salt isn't meant to do that, then what is it good for? Throw it out, cast it out. It's not meant for anything else. And so I think it's just as simple as when we're being what God is wanting us to be, it makes the world a better place. Um, and so we need to be the salt of the earth. We need to follow what God wants us to be. And, uh, you know, if not, we're, we're not following God's will for us to be different than to be this, this saltness to the world. So I think that's as simple as it is. So nice people debated about it. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's that's one that's one take on it. And the other take on it is that salt is used as a preservative, hence salvific, uh, saves is the idea. Um, so, but I, I think I, I agree with you. I, I'm happy with that. But it's kind of interesting that, that he talks about salt losing its savor. In other words, when salt becomes unsalty. And do you ever have that problem after six months? Do you find that Rebecca has to go and throw out the salt because it's not salty anymore? I think so. Yeah, I think that's still a thing, isn't it? No, no, <laughs> no. Salt, really? doesn't, salt doesn't get unsalty. <laughs> really? So why 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 does he talk about if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing? You just throw it out, and it's to be trodden underfoot of men. And I think the idea is certainly in Jerusalem, a lot of their salt source came from around the Dead Sea. You've probably seen pictures of the Dead Sea. It's so salty around its its shoreline. You just have clumps of salt-covered, mineral-covered dirt clods or rocks or whatever. Yeah. And so they would that would be a source of salt for the for the people of Jerusalem. Well, the thing is, if you've got this big chunk of dirt that's covered in salt, after a little while, you use up all the salt, and your salt source is no longer salty. It's just dirt. So what do you do with it? You throw it out in the street and it gets trodden into the, to the roadbed. I'm sorry. I wasn't prepared to talk about that. I did not realize that that wasn't a thing. So that's cool. how, how do you, how do you come on to this, this program and say, we're going to talk about Matthew chapter five. I, I'm an expert on Matthew chapter five and, and hadn't, hadn't, <laughs> I'm giving now, I'm face a rough time. Now, yeah. Now I'm wishing we would have recorded the beginning where I said, I'm not an expert. on. <laughs> uh, but that that's cool though, Jeff. I'm glad, I'm glad you're able to bring that. Cause I didn't. It, it really is. An, it's, it's an interesting picture. It makes Jesus statement a little bit more picturesque because if you can see somebody going, yeah, we've lost all the saltiness in this. Throw it out, you know, throw it out there and it'll just get trodden underfoot as all the passerby, passersby go by. And then spiritually to say, if you've lost your spiritual saltiness, what good are you? It, yeah. it, it's hard for us, I think, to see the power of that illustration when we go to aisle four and pick up the Mortons and it's all clean. It's already been uh, sorted through. And you know, iodized. Yes. Yeah, that too. Um, uh, and so uh, I think it's hard for us to maybe see the image that they would have seen in the first century. It may even be hard to see the second image here, right? The lights, the city set on a hill. 
Um, you know, there's not as many places perhaps where that would be uh, so significant um, and, and so powerful. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, I think that gets it really well, guys. Be salt, be light. Um, don't hide your light. And last part, verse 16, I think is important. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. we got to put emphasis on that. We're not doing these things or, or doing these Christian things just so that people can pat us on the back and say, wow, you did such a good job. But glory is being given to the Father that's in heaven. Uh, what's the what's works. the purpose of light when you turn the light on or when you light a, a candle you you don't turn it on so that you can you know you don't light a candle so you can see the candle uh you you're trying to shine light onto something else and so if we're going to be the light we're not drawing attention to ourselves we're trying to draw attention to that which we are seeking to 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 shine uh the, the lord himself and I think this is important one to have on the front end of the Sermon on the Mount, because we have got to learn to love the light. And there's going to be other parables where Jesus talks about that. And even in John 1, it talks about them not knowing or comprehending the light and not liking the light. And so we got to get to the point that we appreciate what the light does as it, it uh, exposes the darkness in our life and the darkness in the world. So, uh, okay, excellent. Now, um, I now, you know, I, I kept talking about in Jerusalem. Of course, this is not taking place in Jerusalem. So that, you know, you might you might think about that a little bit. How how likely is it that Jesus is alluding to a practice that would have been more familiar in Jerusalem? But who knows that salt could have gotten shipped up from the Dead Sea up to Galilee. Anyway, go ahead. All right, let's keep going. Can one of you read 17 through 20? I'll take that. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Guys, why does Jesus feel the need to clear this up? Like, why would he move to this direction after talking about being salt and being light? Might be I'm question. waiting for you to tell us. Well, it seems well, like it's going to be a good segue into much of what he's going to talk about here in the next several uh, lessons, right? Yeah, I think there's, there's a sense in which we need to think about what was happening with Jesus before he started the Sermon on the Mount and some of the things that were happening, you know, after the Sermon on the Mount or maybe during the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, the Pharisees, for instance, had they had a few run-ins with Jesus up until this point? <clears throat> I would think so. Um, so assuming we take some of the events in the other Gospels to be chronological, there's at least separate, three separate occasions where Jesus has a confrontation with the Pharisees about the Sabbath day. And so Jesus had, has had multiple run-ins with the Pharisees to this point. And it just makes me wonder, are people saying about Jesus up until this point, he's making his own law, he's making his own rule, he is just simply trying to rebel against what God's will is and what, what the Torah says, and he's just making up his own stuff. I think it's very possible but that, that was a rumor going around about Jesus. And so I think it's very possible that Jesus is, is talking about that. He's addressing that to his followers. You know, some of you have heard this said about me. Some of you have heard that, I, you know, I'm just saying I'm here to abolish the law and the prophets, but that is not the case. I came to fulfill these things. 
But more than that, what Joe is emphasizing is, is far more textual and better to point out that Jesus is about to say a lot of things in the form of, well, you've heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say unto you, dot, dot, dot. And so how do we place all those things whenever Jesus has just said, you know, I didn't come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. And um, so anyways, that, that's simply what I've had in mind with that question. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The, and I don't know how much you want to get into it and, and just full transparency here. I talked about wanting to move um, somewhat quickly through the text today. And now we get to this passage in verses 17 through 20. And there's several questions we could spend the whole time talking about it here. And so I'm going to try to keep my mouth shut, I guess, unless you, one of you guys want to go into some of that. Well, I think it is helpful for us to discuss and try to understand the best we can um, what Jesus is, what, it, what his purpose is. What does it mean to, to not destroy but to fulfill? Um, uh, we, we have people regularly talking about things that come from the old law that we're still under, whether that's the Sabbath or tithing or, uh, you know, whatever uh, passage du jour it might be. Um, uh, if they like it, they say, well, that's, that's part of God's word. We still need to keep that and, and so forth. Does that, uh, does that have any significance in light of what Jesus is saying here? All right. I'm going to open my mouth and, and you guys can help me out here. Um, <laughs> so I've got a question and it really is a question, but I, I struggle with this passage because on the one hand, I get it that Jesus came to fulfill the law in Romans, the 10th chapter, he is the end of the law and that the point there is not, Paul is not saying the termination of the law in the sense of it is no more, although in some sense that may be true. The point is he is the goal. He is what the law, he's the culmination. And so you think about in so many ways, whether you're talking about the sacrifices under the law or whether you're talking about God dwelling with his people in the house of the Lord, ultimately all those things point to Jesus and Jesus is the one who accomplishes all of those things. So in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, Verse one, the law having uh, a not not the having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image. The law was looking to Jesus, and then Jesus comes and He's the fulfillment. So on the one hand, I can I'm very comfortable with Jesus saying, "Look, I, my purpose isn't to destroy the law; my purpose is to fulfill it." But then there's this statement: "Not one jot or one tittle shall in in, in pass away until all things be accomplished." Um, and I guess if you guys want to talk a little bit about what that means, and I've got a question as to what it might mean. Well, yeah. at least one of the things I think would be fitting there are all of the messianic prophecies regarding him. Uh, you know, the, the, the things that were spoken regarding uh, what was going to happen to the son of David or the seed of Abraham uh, so forth. They, all that the, the law talked about, uh, Jesus was going to, to fulfill those things. Yeah, so, no, I, so, I think that's exactly right. And I guess I hadn't thought about it like that before, Jeff, um, because I, I just always thought it meant, you know, there's still some time in Jesus's life. Uh, you know, we're, we're only in Matthew 5. We're going to get to Matthew 28 and Acts 2, where more things are going to be accomplished that fulfill the law that Jesus is talking about. And so, so I guess that's simply how it took So it. I guess to clarify my question, he says, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle of the law uh, shall, shall uh, pass away. So first of all, I guess the question is, what does he mean by heaven and earth passing away? 
And, and if we take that to mean what we might first think it means, namely the, the, what we refer to as the second coming of Christ, to the, when Christ comes in our future, um, then is he saying that every detail of the law is enforced till then? And if so, in what sense? Um, so you see the question I've got. I think so. Is it too simple to just say that it, it is saying until heaven and earth pass away, meaning the second coming, but since Jesus fulfilled all those things by the end of his life, then those things are fulfilled. And so they're not passing away. They've just been fulfilled. Does that make I sense? See. So, so I, yeah, I see what you're saying. So, um, and I, I'm not sure that, so what, what basically what you're saying is whichever comes first, all things being accomplished or, heaven and earth passing away once all things are accomplished and that's got the job done kind of right so, so go ahead joe well there's a couple other places you might think about and and you know i guess it's uh debatable whether these would apply or not but like in luke 16 17 jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail um and so he's contrasting the heaven and earth passing away or or maybe even uh, more significant, Luke 21, uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Um, and so showing the, the permanence or the durability of his word is more sure than even the ground that we are literally standing on. Um, yeah, so almost an idiomatic expression. And, and in Luke 21, I think we might take heaven and earth passing away there as the destruction of Jerusalem. Right. But, but I'm not sure that solves everything. So here's a thought, and maybe this is totally wrong, but I'll throw it out there and you guys can either go, nah, or you can go, well, maybe. Um, in, in one sense, everything in the law, everything in the law, in as much as it's all pointing to Jesus, everything in the law has a meaning beyond just the surface meaning. For example, the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath. Paul makes it clear in Colossians chapter 2, we're not to judge anybody by keeping the Sabbath day. And yet there's a sense in which the Sabbath has not passed away because the meaning of the Sabbath, the ultimate meaning of the Sabbath is what you see spelled out in, in Hebrews chapter 4, the ultimate rest of the people of God. You might think about circumcision. Uh, clearly the New Testament makes, makes it plain that circumcision is nothing uncircumcision is nothing it doesn't matter whether you're physically circumcised but the meaning of circumcision in the old testament there there was a spiritual significance to it 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 actually pointed to a spiritual circumcision um stephen uses the expression in acts the seventh chapter uh where he's indicting his hearers and he refers to them as stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and, and um, so there is a circumcision of the heart that, that is still in force. And I think I could, I could grasp the idea that, that perhaps Jesus' meaning is every jot and tittle, every detail of law ultimately has a spiritual import. And, and until all of that is fulfilled, um, is what, what he's getting at in Matthew chapter 5. I don't know. What do you think about that? Is that you're, you're kind of saying like the Old Testament has spiritual purpose and meaning? I, I like that idea. <laughs> so to our viewers, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Joe. Yes, Joe. 
the Old Testament has spiritual purpose and meaning. <laughs> for, for our viewers, that's my soapbox. Uh, that's the only reason why I said that. And, and for our viewers, I think Joe has long suspected me of not grasping that concept. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. We're in agreement on that. <laughs> yes. So, uh, Chase, what do you think? Uh, I think all that's good. Uh, I don't. I don't have any other thoughts or comments on that. Uh, in, in other words, that, he doesn't honestly. agree. <laughs> I just had. I just had. I don't think I've thought deeply enough about it. I need to think about that more. All right. So, so I, I, I do wonder if we if we should not take in this text. Look how much he emphasizes the kingdom of heaven. Yes. You know what? It's three times in these in these yes. four verses. Yes. Uh, that's really significant. You know, we we might struggle to know exactly precisely what some of these things mean, but what's he driving at? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I'll be honest with you guys. I, I have a lot of questions about this section anyways. I mean, he talks about those that are least in the kingdom of heaven, uh, the ones that, that break these commands and teach others to do the same. And so, you know, in this kingdom, you learn that there's going to be greatest and least and that'll be something that Jesus will talk about later. Well, I, I, uh, so that's interesting. I liked what you did last week, Chase, where you went back, you took us back, I don't know, to two or three passages just real quickly. In, in Matthew chapter 3, 1, John comes in verse 2 saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew chapter 4, and verse 17, Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we come to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, and Jesus is going all through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And we remember Jesus is the, the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's going to be making the case. I am the Christ coming in. John pointed to him as, as the Messiah. And so now Jesus is, is presenting this lesson about kingdom living, about the kingdom of heaven. And there's a contrast with the kingdom that many of the Jews were expecting, just as there's a contrast with the king that many of the Jews were expecting. Okay, so maybe I, maybe I missed the connection. Just that, that when we get into this section, you, you know, we started out in, in verse three in the first of the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and now we get into this kind of this transitional passage in verses 17 through 20, where he is talking about, I didn't come to destroy the law, uh, I came to fulfill it, and here's what the kingdom of heaven is really about, kind of that kind of an idea. Okay, I'm sorry, now I see what you're saying. Okay. And, and then, I, I thought, yeah. go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to also note, and I think somebody mentioned this last week, um, your, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you won't be a part of this kingdom of heaven. Um, yeah. and, and so he's, he's going to be talking in this sermon about what righteousness really is. And what yeah. a shock to the system that would be, because from the common person's vantage point, who's in charge of the, 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 the spiritual realm, even the religious realm, probably more accurately stated, um, it would be the scribes and the Pharisees. Yeah. You know, uh, th these are the people that are supposed to be leading the charge. And uh, he's saying, you've got to surpass what they're doing. Um, uh, your life needs to, to, to look more, um, it needs to be more in line with what God wills than what these people are teaching. But interestingly, surpassing what they're doing doesn't mean coming up with even more rules. It, it means looking inward and making sure your heart yeah. is what it's supposed to be. Amen. So, uh, so my next question was going to be, 
what the attitude really encapsulates everything that we're talking about here. I would say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, that's and good. So, yeah, I think that's exactly. And really, that works as a good transition into what Jesus is about to get into. But Joe, you might have had another beatitude that you were thinking of. I, I, I don't disagree with yours. I mean, I think we could probably make an argument maybe for each one of them. But uh, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had no interest in listening to Jesus. Uh, so now we're in a my beatitude is better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. that's, that's the power of these beatitudes. And Chase mentioned last week how they build upon each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so we we have this sense of this is the character of the person as your original slide described yeah so let's get into this next section guys um i'll read for us let's read 21 through 26 you have heard that it was said to our ancestors do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment but i tell you everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your, uh, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. So, guys, this one works as a really good introduction to what Jesus is doing. And so uh, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors this. And what do you guys immediately recognize about do not murder? Where is that from? Ten Commandments. That's exactly right. I mean, it's from the Ten Commandments. That is from the old law. And if you're in the audience, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. If you're like, okay, well, I think we all agree, you know, do not murder. What could Jesus possibly say to, to try and alter that or change right. that? But what you see exactly what Jesus is doing. In verse 22, he says, I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment and so forth and so on. And so he's getting you to look inwardly, as Joe was just talking about a little bit ago. He, he is calling them to the original intent. What I'll say is the original intent of the old law. I mean, to, to have a change of heart. Uh, the outward things are hopefully a reflection of what is going on inwardly. And so Jesus is saying, don't get to the point where you're just like, yeah, fine, I won't murder him. But get to the point where you will not hate him in your heart. Get to the point where you will not insult him. Get to the point where you will truly love this person. Uh, and just don't settle for just saying, well, I didn't murder the guy, so look at how holy I am. Yeah. Uh, th- that's ridiculous. Thoughts on it? It's just, it's, it's amazing to me. It's stunning. I think the crowd would have found it stunning the way Jesus says, but I say unto you. I mean, he's already mentioned the scribes who were the experts in the law. They copied it and they knew it. And the Pharisees who were viewed by society and certainly by themselves as the epitome of righteousness as the standards. And the Jews have these hundreds of years of traditional understanding of what the law is, what God's law is. And now here comes this, this individual saying, all right, here's what you've heard, but I say unto you. And then you think about all of the, the ways that the Jewish tradition said uh talk about various interpretations of the law and he said well this rabbi says that but that rabbi says that but this other rabbi says this and jesus just comes he says 
but I say unto you. And then you get to the end of the sermon. And of course, you have the statement in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7. People were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Guys, can I tell you something I like about all of these sections that we're going to look at? Because Jesus will give out the commandment, you know, not only don't murder, but don't think these things. But Jesus will also kind of give us an encouragement and a solution and something that we can be doing instead of sitting there stewing at our brother or sister. Mm -hmm. And so in verse 24 or 23 and 24, he says, so, hey, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to them. Uh, and, th and then come and offer up, you know, your offering. And in verse 25, hey, reach the settlement quickly uh, with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court so that you don't get handed over. Jesus is giving us proactive solutions to these problems, which is really good. Mm -hmm. Right. And so how sobering should this be for us? I mean, you, you think, uh, imagine yourself as a Jew in the first century. You've heard the sixth commandment, right? Uh, you shall not commit murder. How hard is that to understand? I mean, that's pretty straightforward. You know, who's going to debate? Well, what does that mean? You know, maybe there's some nuances, but, but it's pretty clear what, you know, you shall not murder. But Jesus says, no, you, 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 you've got that wrong. It's not about actually drawing blood out of the man. You know, I, and so then it makes me really, it, it humbles me and it scares me a little bit. What New Testament passages do I think I've got a handle on? Because, well, it says what it means. It means what it says kind of thing. And am I thinking spiritually as the Lord would want me to apply that passage? Yep. So I'll ask again. I, I have two in mind this time. What beatitude comes to your all's mind with this? Well, um, let's go with blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Is that one of them? I think that's one of them. That's one I have in my mind, at least, you know, if you're not willing to show mercy and reconcile here in verse 26, truly, I tell you, you will never forget out of there until you've paid up the last. Well, my, my, mine's better than Jeff, because I'm going to say blessed are the peacemakers. I, I was going to yes, say that yeah. next. <laughs> well, you see, and I just get to be right, because those were both of the ones I had on my list. But yeah, bless, blessed are the peacemakers. But verse eight um, comes before verse nine. Oh, yeah. True, true, true. <laughs> But uh, guys, you guys can already see the pattern. I'm going to do this for pretty much every section we go through uh, because Jesus is saying on the front end of that sermon, if you don't have these characteristics, you're not going to be able to apply the rest of what I'm saying. And so you really need to nail these down if you want to live in the kingdom. That's a great exercise. I've not thought to do that before. Thanks. I neither. Okay. So let's read this next one. Uh, back around to one of you two. Can you read 27 through 30? You've heard that it was said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that everyone that looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not the whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is not profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not your whole body go into hell. So we see the pattern again. Which one is Jesus clearly referencing in, uh, in verse 27? The seventh commandment. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, do not commit adultery. A big one. Do you think this is one the Jews would have taken seriously? In their minds, yes. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that, I, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, yeah, they would have taken this one real seriously. Like, uh, in fact, in some of the Jewish traditions, if I'm not mistaken, you guys remember it being such a big deal that Jesus in John 4 was with that woman alone? I mean, they drew some really hard lines to never be alone with another woman. And uh, just as a precaution against being alone with another woman and being tempted to commit adultery like that. And so on the surface, you might say, you know what, Jesus, they already know this one. You don't need to go any further. <clears throat> but of course, Jesus is emphasizing what is going on in the heart in verse 28. But I tell you, whoever uh, or anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Don't pat yourself on the back and go, wow, I'm such a good person. I didn't commit adultery when you're sitting there and you're undressing that person in your mind, that you are just as guilty at that point. And Jeff talked about the shock value or the shock level that I think some of the people would have had. I really do think that some of the people listening to Jesus would have had a shock. And I know that because when I'm at the fire station, I'm talking about these kind of principles. It shocks people when I say, I don't even look at a woman to lust with her or lust after her. You know, I, I, the guys, they'll see me go to the other side of the gym to work out. Uh, if there's someone somewhere that I, I don't want to be around. And so these principles that Jesus is teaching are still shocking to people. And we better be following them because as men, and this goes for women too, we know where that kind of sin starts. It always starts up. Here. Right. And so we, we have better get it under control there. Right. Um, and so again, where people might debate, well, what exactly is adultery? Um, and to use, uh, uh, juvenile terminology is that going all the way or you know uh, heavy petting or whatever and and those are all you know those those sorts of of degrees are all actions that we're taking not the thoughts of our heart um, and so Jesus wants to take us way back to the very beginning where that where that sin begins yeah that's exactly right and so Jesus, like we've been talking about, he gives the correction in verses 29 and 30. So if your right eye uh, causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In verse 30, he does the same thing with the hand. So guys, is Jesus literally talking about mutilation here? Well, you if know, he is, why would you have to throw it away from you? And, and if he is... By only one eye the fact is you can still see with the other eye mm -hmm. yeah that, that's exactly right those would be both of the points that are brought up as well and so if he's not talking about actual mutilation what's his point remove the opportunity what, what you see what you do and where you go yeah so i'm sure you guys remember that little story in proverbs 7 so for any of our listeners you can go read proverbs 7 right here uh and this this was a guy who knew where his right hand was and knew where his left eye was and so forth and so on. He was going and looking for an opportunity to sin. Mm -hmm. For a long time up in Proverbs 7, he's not sinning. He's not doing anything that's necessarily in and of itself sinful, but he is setting himself up for failure. And he does by the end of the, the story in Proverbs 7, he ends up failing. And so we have got to cut off those, those situations. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. 
And, and so according to Jesus's words, it's not just at the end of Proverbs 7 that he sins. It's at the beginning where he has his yeah. heart set wrong. Mm-hmm. That's exactly but, right. Yes. But, but that's that, that's not the way that we see sin, unfortunately. Uh, we, we need to see it as Jesus. Well, how many, how many times have we heard some guy say, well, there's no harm in looking? Mm-hmm. Way too many. You know, I, I can I can rent a car, but I don't have to buy it. You know, and they use really crude analogies like that to try and justify it. Right. Yeah. It, it's really sad. Um, y'all think of Bible examples of people who literally did this, who who were willing to tear out the eye and cut off the hand. <clears throat> you mean literally to tear out the? No, no, no literally. No, no, sorry. So sorry. People, well, I heard the word literally there. Uh, I'm so sorry. That was a poor use of the word literally. He, he, he meant literally figuratively. So Job 31. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made a covenant with my eyes that I yeah. shall not gaze upon a maiden. Yeah. And, and, and he goes on and says that if, if, I, if I break that, then let my limbs be torn from my body. Uh, and I like the story of Joseph when he refused not only to lie with Potiphar's wife, but even to be with her. And and I I do think, maybe I'm wrong, but I do think it's actually saying two things in that text. Um, maybe somebody would argue it's saying the same thing twice, but it looks like it's, it's saying he did, he wouldn't lie with her and he even avoided her. Mm-hmm. That's, that seems to be the implication, especially when she kind of corners him and comes into a room that he was in. Um, yeah, and I even think about maybe some of the other end of the examples. I think about Lot you know pitching his tent towards sodom and the next thing we know he's in sodom he he wasn't doing away with those things but he was getting closer and closer and before you know it that you know the story goes he's he's there in sodom or i even think about israel uh whenever they go to enter into the promised land god commands them he says hey drive out the canaanites don't leave them here they're going to be like a thorn in your side and i think too many times when it comes to sexual sin we, we leave canaan there we leave the access to those things that have been tripping us up there and jesus is pleading with us to cut those things off to to do away with them burn the bridges burn the ships and and really take drastic measures uh to to have a pure heart and that that's the beatitude that comes to my mind with this one guys is blessed are the pure in heart yeah we we need Uh, need to make sure that we don't stay on the rooftop yes absolutely so let's read this last one here. We've got about six minutes here, so we might just get through it. Um, can one of you read 31 through 32? Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever, divorce, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Okay, so... This is coming from Deuteronomy 24, really verses one through four is the section that's being quoted from here. And uh, Jesus said, you know, look, I understand that there's this way you could divorce your wives, whoever divorces wives, you just need to give her that written notice or give her that certificate of divorce. But Jesus is very clear here in verse 32. um, If you divorce your wife and if you skip past the exception, you cause her to commit adultery, and whoever marries, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. A very high view of marriage that Jesus is taking. And there is an exception that Jesus gives there, with the exception of the case of sexual immorality, fornication, porneia is the Greek word there that's discussed. Guys, I don't know how much more detail you all want to go into that, so I'll just kind of hand it off to you all. 
Well, I'm just wondering, would, would you all see this as a good illustration that Jesus isn't simply quoting the Old Testament and saying, I've got a better way now than what I actually said before? No, um, think, yeah, absolutely. Because isn't Deuteronomy, aren't they in, here, this, what they're hearing is not really the point of Deuteronomy 24. No, no. If no. you read all four verses, it puts it in way better context. And, and so what, what a danger it is to pull things out of context. You know, that's what they're, what you, you have heard. Um, well, you need to go back and read the passage. Uh, you need to think about it. Yeah. Matt, Deuteronomy 24 did not say uh, when you divorce your wife, give her a writing of divorcement. Clearly, Jesus is dealing with an audience that takes that to be the point. Exactly. Um, but you go back to Deuteronomy 24, and, and it's four verses, and the first three verses are just a series of ifs. Mm -hmm. If a man puts away his wife, and he gives her a right of divorcement, and she goes and marries somebody else, and that guy either dies, or he gets tired of her and puts her away. And then you get to verse four, and that's the teaching. The first guy can't take her back. Right. And so while Deuteronomy 24 acknowledges divorce as a, as a thing that happened, it's not telling people Hey, if you want to divorce your wife, give her a writing of divorcement. But that's what people got out of it. And so Jesus is saying something else other than what people got out of it. He's not so much contradicting Deuteronomy 24 as he's contradicting their take on it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's so helpful to see here in the Sermon on the Mount that, that what he is contradicting is their misunderstandings and the misteachings of murder, adultery, divorce here. Um, uh, and so we need to be careful to make sure that we look for ourselves what God's word says and not just listen to what somebody else says that it says. And if I can add this, there's really a consistency in Deuteronomy 24 what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you put her away, you give her a right enforcement, you're thinking you're being righteous. And the Jews did. They thought they were, oh, I've, I've been righteous to this woman. I've made it possible for her to marry somebody else. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Uh, your righteousness has got to be better than this standard of righteousness. All you're doing when you give her this right enforcement that in essence says she can go and in fact, it explicitly says she can go and be joined to somebody else. All you're doing is making her an, an adulteress. She is an adulteress when she does that. Well, in Deuteronomy 24, it gives the reason the first husband can't take her back. And the reason is, is by being joined to the second man, she was defiled. Yeah, I, I, that's that's really helpful. I like the way you said that, Jeff, because that connects everything back to verse 20 here in Matthew 5. Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. uh, each of these are questions of righteousness, uh, murder and adultery and divorce. Um, uh, that, that's really helpful to, to make that connection to that sort of in, that introductory verse there. Mm -hmm. And so as we're all reflecting on Jesus's clear high view of marriage and staying together in your marriage regardless of what's going on what the attitudes come to mind as you think about that what kingdom citizens who want to take their marriage seriously what the attitudes are really going to apply pure in heart um hungering and thirsting after righteousness even yeah. even even maybe being poor in spirit in the application there I was going to say, uh, blessed are the merciful, um, you know, having to show mercy in your marriage. And let me point out, guys, in Matthew 5 and the passage in Matthew 19, 1 through 9, Jesus is not saying if your husband or wife 
commits a, a uh, fornication against you, you have to divorce them. He's not saying that that's the outcome you have to that you have to choose. You can choose to reconcile and, and choose to show mercy. And uh, we've all known cases where people have done that. And so uh, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's going to be times we have to humble ourselves and make peace with our spouse. Um, I don't know if blessed are the persecuted is necessary, <laughs> but maybe, maybe, maybe in some marriages. So, okay. Sorry. Anyways, sorry. Yeah, that was probably a poor joke, but all of these beatitudes are, are sprinkled throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, guys, it looks like we only got about 30 seconds left. Is there anything else you all want to talk about in Matthew 5? Well, I just think it's always helpful to connect Malachi 2 and seeing that God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. And the reason is because it covers the altar with tears uh, and weeping and crying. You know, divorce is, is never a, uh, an, an innocent uh, adventure. Um, there's always sin involved in every divorce. There's sin involved one place or another or both. Um, uh, and so we need to take that attitude that God has toward it. Um, even when it might be within the realm of what God permits, let's recognize that it's not God's desire that things end that way. Amen. Well, that's a good place to end, guys. Lord willing, we will pick up in verse 33 next week. Thanks you. Thank you to everybody for, uh, for listening this week. We'll pick up there.